Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to episode 126 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Ron Hunt, a retired police officer <laughs> turned private eye that will do anything for money. <laughs> of course I'm not, I'm Andy Stewart, hello. Good evening, how you doing? I'm okay, yeah, I could only hope to be Ron Hunt. I think that we can all only hope to be on hunt. Uh, so here we are, uh, another one of these, Andy versus Mitch. How are you feeling? It's your turn. These generally don't go well. How are you feeling, kind of facing down? Look, I mean, you're, you're looking down the barrel of this, right? You've picked another film. It's kind of out of left field. You've got to be feeling a bit nervous around about now, Mitch. Well, the thing is that these historically go so badly that there's not really a great amount of room for it to get any worse. So I kind of mm. figured that for this time around... I would just go nuclear and choose a 1991 made-for-TV Canadian horror-slash-thriller-slash-mystery story. And you certainly have. Now, regular listeners to the show might be familiar with the film that you've chosen, um, because you have indeed taken us back to 1991 for Bozidar D. Benedict's magnum opus, from what I can tell. <laughs> Graveyard Story. Yeah, I watched this as part of my 90s side quest, yeah. so it'll be another thing that's familiar to uh, regular listeners. And after I mentioned it, uh, it kind of took on a little bit of a life of its own uh, in that this is on YouTube and on Amazon Prime in the UK, so it's very accessible. And there was one time, one week, where I'd gotten to the time to record a mini so I think it was like an hour and a half before, and I was like, oh, shit, I haven't watched a 90s movie. Mm-hmm. So I literally, I just rolled over, picked up my laptop, uh, opened YouTube and wrote 90s horror, scrolled down, looked for something that looked kind of vaguely interesting. I was like, right, okay, let's go with Graveyard Story. At this point, I didn't know that it was a made-for-TV Canadian movie. I knew nothing about it at all. I was like, right, let's just fly blind into this, see what it takes us. <laughs> I could not have been happier with how that went. Yeah, uh, and you came back for the minisode. You were full of the joys of spring as it pertained to this film. Anyway, you were over the moon. So that's really your your whole story. There's no point in me asking uh, how, kind of when you first came to this or playing into your nostalgia the first time that you saw it because the nostalgia was like six months ago. Uh, yeah um yeah i i don't think that there's i don't have a long and storied history with this mm. film um of any description I, I have a feeling that i will go on to in the fullness of time right okay but for, for the purposes of now we were probably still in lockdown at the time it was very much new to you as it was to me because i can also tell you i don't have a history with this film at all and for the first time I think in any of these episodes that we've done andy versus mitch episodes i might be watching something for the first time yeah, um, it's been a kind of nice trend in a lot of the recent episodes that you've been watching things for the first time, but not very often things that I've chosen. So I don't want to dig too much into what your impressions were just yet. I kind of want to let that unfold kind of as we go. Mm, yeah. But um, you got any surface comments you want to make? What I want to say is, Mitch, stand by for my thoughts at the end. Just <laughs> stand by, because I, I feel that they're formed. I watched this yesterday. I kind of dug oh. into a couple of bits tonight that I wanted to just revisit to get my head straight on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I'm there. I 
think I'm there. Good, good. No, I, I, I kind of like that. I like the fact that for a first watch for an Andy versus Mitch episode, you did your homework the day before. Uh, you know, you gave yourself a day to absorb it. I would say that that's the minimum that a person needs to really let it bed in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of twists and turns that you need to kind of wrap your head around, and I think I've done that. Okay, cool. I'm glad that you think that you've picked apart its many mysteries. A bold assertion after one viewing. <laughs> it's me- it doesn't have many mysteries. There's one core mystery and a lot of uh, <laughs> gubbins. <laughs> holding that core mystery together yeah that's so true yeah it's one mystery i just shrouded in fluff <laughs> exactly right uh so i have to cede my position as master of time in this environment um, in this environment in this context i do have time on the clock mitch and i will momentarily present you with a countdown at which point upon completion of the countdown i will require from you a 30 second synopsis of yugoslavian auteur bozidar d benedict's graveyard story are you ready <laughs> um okay yeah the countdown is imminent three two one synopsis size dr mcgregor is uh, an old man who is having ghostly apparitions of a dead child who is uh buried in a very large and very eye-catching secret grave he enlists the help of a uh, detective ron hunt from canada to come and pick apart the mystery of the mysterious circumstances under which this girl died and to discover who her parents were and the mafia show up and that's about it and there's some twists but i don't want to say what they are yet time I feel like that was one of my more frantic efforts. I feel like I'm normally much more composed with those. Well, frankly, it was all over the map. So is the film, though. Well, you're kind of right in so much as there is a lot of... Let me get through what I have to get through in this scene, and then we'll move on to the next thing, and I will continue my investigation in the next location. And then from there, I will move on to find another tiny piece of the information and yet another location. And it's all done with remarkable skill and put together relatively easily. Uh, yeah, agreed. We also see him doing almost no travelling. He just appears in locations That's all the right. time. It's like Game of Thrones Season 7. Yep, he can move across what is... We know it to be a small town, but he can move across this uh, with the alarming speed of Westeros Ravens. He does indeed navigate the sprawling metropolis that is Weston yes. with uh, remarkable ease. But I think that we should jump into this because after a very long and very dramatic credit sequence that is just a static shot of a big house. Uh, yes, a house that we will later learn is called Stonehenge for some reason. <laughs> because... <laughs> and at this point, we are introduced to certain elements of the story um, in a dramatic voiceover courtesy of Dr. McGregor. Mm, see these credits, right? Yes. If you look on IMDb, right, at the cast and crew section mm-hmm. there's only like five names on there so do we suppose then that the credits may in fact be one of those scenarios where they just add loads of names who didn't really do anything and really it was all Bozidar D. Benedict doing everything <laughs> Benedict D. Bozidar um, <laughs> I, um, I would say that's possible because the credits do seem like they go on for ages at the start in almost no time at all when the film ends that's right I did notice that yeah but I'm uh, but I'm uh, you know what I'm not gonna question the legitimacy of uh, Bozidar, and we have to do the very opposite of that. But yeah, we do open in the opulent home of Dr. McGregor, and uh, so begins the first in a long sequence of us being punched in the face by this film's score. Yeah, uh, no first name to speak of. I guess he prefers the mystery of just being... Unless his first name is Doctor. I was going to say, just like, just like in nominative determinism, he's a doctor who's called Doctor. 
Yeah, yeah, it could just be that. But uh, yeah, he uh, visited regularly by the spectral form of a blue dress wearing young girl. Uh, yes, uh-huh. Um, and we see one such visit and he considers no other options that it might be a dream or a hallucination or anything like that. He immediately gets on the blower to Detective Ron Hunt. He digs up a newspaper and scrolls through it to the wanted ads where Detective Ron Hunt has posted an advert saying that he's a former police detective seeking employment and will consider any case. Yep, he'll do anything. Anything. Also, I thought it was really curious that he was a former police detective who is not retired. We find out uh, after he comes to meet uh, Dr. McGregor and gets picked up in the limousine that um, his time with the police was spent as a narcotics guy, so he's perfect for this investigation of a possibly supernatural schoolgirl. Well, I'm, I'm, I'd like to just expand a little bit on his past because, yes, you're right, Mitch, that he was previously a narcotics agent. He was an undercover narcotics agent. This all happens in an exposition dump in the back of a limousine. After a three-year case where he was undercover with a drug gang he was given a new identity which he just tells a stranger yeah he's he's got a very laissez-faire attitude to classified information yeah there is all a, the way through this as you mentioned through. earlier mitch there is mafia involvement in this so uh, actually i believe then that ron hunt isn't his name oh good question no i would assume i mean like if i was gonna say if you were picking a name for yourself you'd pick a better one than ron hunt but it's quite punchy isn't it yeah yeah it feels like a detective's name absolutely but to be fair he has no idea what he's letting himself in for here he doesn't he couldn't possibly have predicted that there was going to be a mafioso element in this at all because i certainly couldn't the first time that i watched it true but yeah we do get this kind of brief backstory of uh dr mcgregor and the trouble he's been having with this supernatural visitor of his his limo takes them to exposition cemetery where ironically exposition is very much alive and where do you drive up a path and then just drive right onto the grass to whatever grave seems to suit your fancy yes in this case a super secret grave which is uh, five foot high with a statue of the inhabitant on top of it. That's true, Mitch, and it's quite a striking grave for a secret grave. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it doesn't exactly blend in with the, uh, its surroundings, I don't think. Made all the more eye-catching by the fact that it cries. Yeah, aha, uh-huh, yeah, an expensive uh, an expensive addition. I love what it says on her grave. Uh, Dolly Cooper, 1970 to 1980, a tragic death of her innocent life, which is just absolute grief word salad. Yeah, and he, he just strokes and caresses this gravestone and, and whispers to it, uh, what is it, little girl? What are you trying to tell me? Like, it's so fucking bizarre. It's so weird. Um, it is weird it is weird he he talks to that statue the way that characters talk to lassie my question immediately is why and this is a question that will be answered by a line later in the film but my question is why why is this interaction that's it why is this interaction yeah i mean i think that that is i think that that's a fair question i don't really have an answer for that i think that it is a very very dramatic and very ham-fisted representation of his inner monologue about him kind of unpicking the mystery of uh, what has happened to uh, poor old dolly cooper taken before her time age just 10 sadly but it just the camera just kind of pans around and ron hunch just standing there like has he been here this whole time because this is an uncomfortable scene to witness yeah, uh-huh. I was thinking that as well, because like he is just kind of standing there just looking right at him this entire time, presumably, because, I mean, where else is he going to go? He doesn't know Weston. You he know? doesn't at all, no, no. Uh... There's a fish out of water in a world he never made. <laughs> we also learn that this statue has changed McGregor's life, and then we get another exposition dump here to let us know that Dr. McGregor was a successful psychiatrist who... <laughs> As is common in his profession, apparently, absorbed the fears and neuroses from his patients and became clinically fed up, in the words of Alan Partridge. 
<laughs> yeah, um, I I wrote that down as well. I thought that was great that he just kind of acknowledged that just part and parcel of being a psychiatrist is that somewhere along the line you'll just acquire some of the illnesses of that um, afflict your patients. Yeah, I also want to say right now because there's a bit later that had me in absolute stitches. Doctor McGregor is an oversharer. <laughs> the absolute highest order. Yeah, uh, he does. He does a fair whack of this here. And he, he's about to do more in this immediate moment because he says, uh, "My friend said I should get married, but instead I adopted a dead girl." Yeah, uh huh. Which um, which uh, stops a fork full of steaming hot food on its way to Ron Hunt's mouth. He stops and just kind of gazes at him for a sec when he says that. Yeah, kudos to Ron Hunt for sitting through all this. Aye, 100%, especially since the rate has not been agreed at this point. He doesn't know what he's setting up for, and he doesn't know what he stands to gain yet, either. We also learn, of course, that Dr. McGregor is obsessed with this grave, visits it all the time, and he feels a connection with the spectral girl. And then, no sooner have these words left his mouth than uh, he talks about how she came to him and placed her hand on him. And I started getting a bit weirded out by this. Yeah, I didn't write this down, but it did occur to me that the way he starts talking about it is really, really fucking odd. But then it's also the way he talks about many other things in the film that are way more graphic than they need to be. Um, but yeah, I was definitely getting visions of when uh, Ray Stance is visited in the night by a ghost in Ghostbusters. It ends up just being the way that he talks, but at this point we don't know that, and it, it is very creepy right out of the gate, isn't it? It does feel like he's performing a ghostly nonsing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly a phantom the very, nonsing the, the very thing uh yeah absolutely but he has become obsessed with finding out the particulars of the tragic death of her innocent life mm, yeah sure ron like the consummate professional that he is wastes no time gets straight on to the case first stop is visiting a priest so begins our investigation and also our whistle stop tour of gigantic 90s electrical appliances that dominate every desk in this film <laughs> i didn't notice that beginning with uh, the typewriter here so no record of her death Occam's razor she isn't dead but we don't get that just yet also he doesn't tell anyone in this town that he is private investigator Ron Hunt he tells everybody that he is the cousin of people who used to live in this town who he believes have passed away and he's just just looking for a bit of extra information, really. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. Um, which, which is actually, I think, possibly the only incident in this entire film where he keeps a sensitive piece of information to himself. Sure. They ha- like you've said, Mitch, they have a look through the... I, I didn't know that the church kept death records. And neither did I. No, no, no. Maybe that's a Canadian thing. Maybe. I thought that would be centralised in some kind of city hall or town hall situation. Yeah, and, and if that uh, church doubles up as that, then I do not approve of uh, how closely integrated church and state are there. <laughs> The uh, priest blames this obvious admin error on the deceased Father Jonathan, which mm. I think is unfair, not around to defend himself, then tells him to direct his inquiry to the police. Ultimately, quite on the nose there with that, though. Go on. Because later on we do learn that, in fact, Father Jonathan does have a part to play. Yeah, seeds planted, not that we know it just yet. Mm. But you're right that the priest sagely refers Ron to the police, because they're probably the best people to speak to, to be honest, if you're uh, on the hunt for a missing person. The hunt. Yeah, way. I'd have started there if I was him, but here we are. This film has an endless sequence of ancillary characters who act dreadfully. Uh, mm. One of my favourites of these is Constable Strickler. Yes, yeah. Also, one of my favourite lines of dialogue comes here as well, when Ron explains what he's here to investigate, uh, the death of a child under suspicious or possibly tragic circumstances in 1980, at which point Constable Strickler checks something either on his computer or in a filing cabinet, I forget which, and then declares that nothing tragic happened to any child in 1980. But then he goes through a litany of all the crimes and accidents that happened. There's like 10 things, maybe, maybe at, the ma- at a maximum. And 
And then he says, look, nobody called Dolly Cooper's ever lived here. I don't think your family lived here. Immediately throwing salt on any of Ron's investigation here and also potentially being really insensitive to a potentially grieving family member. Yes, I would say that he mishandles a few things here. Also, uh, considering this is a town that we go on to learn has a very prominent organised crime element to it, extremely blasé and potentially grossly uninformed about the crime rate. Yeah, and I have to say, Ron at this point asks if he could just have a look at the police computers. Um, you can't just ask that, and you would not be allowed that, even in Canada. And especially if you're lying about your identity. Like, if he'd gone in and said he was Private Eye Ron Hunt, the guy might have let him look at the computers, but you can't just go in and be a family member and ask to troll through the police's computers. I don't care where uh, you are, what town this is. That's not allowed. No, and it's and it's, and it's it's probably, for somebody who's been around the block as much times as Ron Hunt has, probably an egregious tactical blunder. Sure, and I've got to be honest, my favourite notion in the entire film is posited at this point. It's preposterous in the extreme. <laughs> Yeah, some real uh, investigative muscle uh, flexed by Ron Hunt here. <laughs> it's a nice theory, to be honest, uh, but I don't buy it. If I was an investigator or a police officer, I would be like, this is a, this is a fucking stretch, Ron. I would also dismiss out of hand the notion that the child died under mysterious circumstances while his family were passing through the area and then they covered it up by burying her in the cemetery with her real name on the grave with a five foot high statue of her on top of it. If that was indeed the case and they were just passing through the town and sadly their daughter had passed away, they'd have just opened the car door and rolled her out or at the very least given her a shallow leafy grave. (laughs) Yeah, like professionals. Yeah, absolutely. His journey then takes him to the offices of the Western Evening Star, uh, which we don't know too much about exactly what kind of paper we're dealing with here. We don't know if it's kind of a Guardian thing or more of a tabloid or gossip rag. But um, yeah, the music takes a break from constant orchestral bombast here, softens to a lilting harpsichord as we meet Vicky. Yeah, I just want to say as well, this was the first point I really noticed that every shot in this film goes on a beat too long. It really does, doesn't it? Vicky, a journalist here mm. uh, at the Western Evening Star, immediately falls in love with Ron at first sight, kind of with all the subtlety of when Tom from Tom and Jerry's eyes turn into big love hearts and they pop out of his head. That's right, yeah. Uh, she is on the phone gabbing away and she hangs up on her friend because Ron is too gorgeous. He has tied her tongue in knots, he has flooded her basement at first sight. Yeah, she she can't continue with her conversation with Ron in the room because he's got that nice jumper on. Yep, she puts her friend Jan on hold for five full minutes. I also love the fact that Jan on the other end of the phone has that cartoon scrambly noise. That's um uh yeah, I think that's hilarious. It's so cartoonish and stupid. Like I like it's such a such a weird choice. She says to him at one point are you real? And uh, advises him that she's been waiting on him her whole life. Now, this is a lot. Yeah, she gives off a strong vibe of, like, a princess who has been locked in a tower for, like, decades waiting for her prince to come. (laughs) In her castle of paper and ink. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He says that he needs some information about something that happened in 1980. She obviously misunderstands him, presumably thinks he means any information about anything from 1980, because she then Mm -hmm. says that the big hit that year was a sweet molly from the Phantoms, and that also miniskirts made a comeback. Yeah, but when she delivers that tip bit about miniskirts... She hikes her dress up in a provocative manner so that Ron can see all the way up to there. Um, Yeah, the the flirting in this is agonising and overt, to say the very least of it. Ron does not seem in the least bit 
into this flopping at all. He actually seems a bit intimidated as I would be. He's married to his work. Get the case out of the way, then it's party time. Exactly, exactly. When he says that he needs something from 1980, uh, Vicky produces my favourite piece of set dressing in this entire film, oh. uh, which is the giant book of archived newspapers, uh, which is four times the size of her torso. At no point does Ron try and help her with it. He just stands well back and watches her struggle, trying to carry it over to the table. Yep, some of my favourite stuff in this film revolves around this giant book. Uh, <laughs> it's really something. Not even for her, because she, she's a smaller lady. Ron has a real hard time jiggling this book around while he's trying to photocopy the salient passages that he needs. Ron trying to photocopy this enormous, sprawling, gargantuan tome is absolutely fucking hilarious i feel like i'm watching him try to do that for about four minutes it's incredible it's very funny and it's not intended to be no it's funny because like it's obviously supposed to be this intrepid investigator who's kind of hot on the trail and this kind of very curious inquisitive music's playing and it's the kind of thing where we've talked about this before you would see somebody kind of like taking loads of books off a shelf or like going through microfiche or microfilm and uh circling passages in books and stuff like that but all you see is just this one shot it should be a montage of him looking industrious with a few different types of kind of media yeah just even just some random bits of paper that he's just kind of leafing through and like taking a little note on this one a little note on this one but no he has this gigantic book it's it's comically large i know it's got newspapers in it for the past 10 years but it is comically large it's so funny but also it's quite emblematic of how straightforward this investigation is because he finds a very very serious clue literally on the absolute first try and then just photocopies that one thing and is like well Another hard day investigating is at its end. <laughs> Time for me to hit the old dusty trail. You see, it, it's easy for him. It's not easy for him to find this in this newspaper because he then has to photocopy it. And that is arguably the most challenging thing he does in this film. <laughs> it's the biggest obstruction to the entire investigation. Well, uh, things are about to get even weirder because Vicky comes back at this point. She's dressed up for a night out. She's got a couple of plastic cups and a bottle of wine. And from their exchange earlier, which I think was relatively nothing, she has inferred that they're going out for dinner. Yeah, mm -hmm. massively presumptuous. That um, was not a did discussion. Not, no, absolutely, not even remotely. And was also, she completely oblivious to the fact that the flirting was absolutely unilateral as well. <laughs> but Ron, crucially... Uh, does also uh, happen on an article about the suicide of a woman called Elizabeth Cooper, a maid who had worked for the hilariously named local eccentric billionaire Miss Bluer. Yeah, at the Bluer Winery, no less. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, hey, there ain't no wine like a Bluer wine. I'm extremely forgiving of him talking to himself here because it's so funny to watch him connect the dots in real time so much slower than the rest of us. Yeah. yeah. Elizabeth Cooper. Dolly Cooper. That's it. Bluer. <laughs> I wonder if that was a bottle of Bluer wine that, that uh, Vicky brought in. Uh, yeah, maybe. Um, I get the impression she probably does have the Monopoly there. Um, but that kind of tableau becomes extremely sad when you realise that Ron is abandoning her. Those two gigantic 40 ounce plastic cups that she took through are strictly for show. She's going to skull that bottle by herself alone. She does. And, yep, and decanting it into another receptacle would only slow her down. <laughs> I get the feeling she's the only journalist in this town. There's no one else bustling <laughs> around this newspaper office. She's been single-handedly running that newspaper since she was 10 years old. However, Ron is not fucking around. He heads off and I think what is already stopped 
four on this investigation five if you count when he goes to meet uh, dr mcgregor at the start he goes to meet miss bluer herself yeah and asks her about a former employee and specifies that it's elizabeth cooper she reminisces about meeting them the music immediately switches to strident spanish guitar and we are off on a very long flashback yeah i'll just give you some of the the key points here mitch if i may absolutely we see elizabeth and dolly asking for a job elizabeth's husband has left her penniless and we also learn that other employers had tried to abuse her uh what the fuck? yeah and exploit her and stuff yeah it sounds like she's had an incredibly rough uh, rough time of it here mm. um, we also learn that she's from england but you would not know that to hear her speak because she does not have an english accent and we also learn that her family turned their back on her due to dolly she's kind of out in the wind i suppose on her own with this this girl trying to just make things work and support her daughter and just bouncing from place to place riding them yeah yeah it seems that way um the kind of family abandoning her because of the child thing sounds really weird here it's kind of explained a little bit in the fullness of time but it definitely does sound kind of odd here but we do kind of see that uh miss bluer kind of becomes this kind of surrogate almost like auntie for dolly we see them having this kind of very nice very affectionate relationship we also see them having a christmas together we know it's christmas because her winter home is beset by eight feet of snow and a 60-piece orchestra playing jingle bells (laughs) sure uh she's also hired some extremely threatening drifters yes she's evidently prone to wild hiring decisions <laughs> fuck it you'll do yeah like a hundred percent of the hiring choices we see her making this film are wild gambles <laughs> well there's there's four uh, three staff four if you include dolly although i don't know exactly if she's doing anything like on the on the vineyard necessarily but from yeah, what be we... a shade child labor she is about 10 when this happens yep yeah, but from what we can see at least two of them are child stealers <laughs> and one of them is an extremely troubled fragile vulnerable young woman uh-huh um what could possibly go wrong <laughs> well get into that yes because dolly is mistaken for Ms. bluer's child mm-hmm. by these two uh drifters come kidnappers um come kidnappers oh sorry just kidnappers so uh, at one point during a, a brisk winter's walk Ms. Bluer gets distracted for a sec and Dolly goes missing. Bluer is absolutely hysterical, as you would be if you hired a destitute woman and then immediately misplaced her child. Yeah, that's a tricky thing to, to tell a member of your staff. It's a tricky thing to explain away. Um, but also, the drifters kidnap Dolly and extort Ms. Bluer for the Dr. Evil-style sum of $25,000. That's got a real kind of redneck feel to it, do you know what I mean? It's like, that's all life is worth is 25k i don't think that's even like an an adjusted for inflation type special like that's just not very much money for a human life now this apparently spooks bluer enormously despite the fact that she is a millionaire who literally owns a mansion that she only uses in winter and a vineyard yeah but like does she only think that she can pay ransoms for family members because they're like can we have twenty five thousand dollars? and she's like no this is a terrible misunderstanding she's not my daughter she she just washes her hands of that little girl almost immediately she's like nah fuck this you're barking up the wrong tree better speak to her mum her mum's got fuck all so mm, you're going to struggle to make that 25 grand 
yeah, because because she she treats the twenty five the twenty five grand and the extortion as being this unbelievable, horrendous, inconceivable amount of money, and it puts them in this impossible situation. And then when she dispatches her mom Elizabeth to go and reason with the kidnappers, who are famously uh, amenable to these kinds of uh, oh, it's all been a misunderstanding type explanations. Mm-hmm. Um, but when she sends her off to do that, she's like, oh, I've given you all the money that I have in hand, the money that she has lying around the house. Like, down the side of the couch cushions money, three and a half thousand dollars. I would have taken it if I was them. Fuck it. This is a lot of hassle after this point for them. Yeah, this opens up fairly unpleasantly for them. But she does try to explain that it's a case of mistaken identity. Unsurprisingly, this doesn't take. They still want their 25 grand. In fact, they bump it up to 50. That's right, they do, yeah. Um, Bloor does not negotiate with kidnappers, evidently. And they leave what is presumed to be her remains, Dolly's remains, in what is definitely a built-for-purpose coffin with a small cross carved in it. Some nice craftsmanship on this one. Yeah, this is quite a moving moment, actually, this slow Dolly shot of these two women crying and kind of making their way across this barren earth I suppose it it looks quite like weather blasted towards this (laughs) blood soaked pine casket It's, it's like quite a good image I mean it goes on to be instrumental in what is comfortably the stupidest twist in this film and when i say stupid i mean when we find out what happened i just like i clapped my hands with glee and laughed at it because it's such an enjoyably ridiculous thing to have happen sure and we also learn at this point that elizabeth doesn't want to go to the police she's she's done bloor and elizabeth with the help of the aforementioned and dead father jonathan um (laughs) bury her and cover up her death I sure do. On the surface of it, I suppose, Ron's done. That's it. Case closed. I guess so. Questions answered. But the plot thickens and Ron can't resist a mystery. Because the next thing that we do find out is that obviously Elizabeth killed herself the following day. Miss Bloor obviously decides that two secret burials in one week is too many. At this time, she does tell the police. She does, yeah. Uh, One kidnapper is arrested days later and ultimately is jailed. The other gets off (laughs) scot-free. Yeah. He's got all this figured out in 48 minutes. He is quite the private eye. Like, no stone left unturned. Get all your ducks in a row right away and then proceed to tie it all up and that's that's how he operates that's how ron hunt does it and that's uh yeah it's to be admired i mean when he goes back to uh, present his findings to uh, dr mcgregor dr mcgregor first name doctor second name mcgregor is mm-hmm. astonished at the speed that he works he, he can't he can't believe that we're in the end game of this investigation already that's right but run about this time uh, ron goes to see a band uh, i think they're called the 10 eddies <laughs> Uh, uh, because one of the kidnappers, Vic, plays guitar in the band. Yes, uh, he has found out that uh, one of the kidnappers, Vic Morietta, mm. is uh, living a life of quiet seclusion, playing to crowds across the region in a country band in pubs. <laughs> yeah, another woman throws herself shamelessly at Ron here as well. Yeah, I just want to mention quickly that Ron also on his way here says, some secrets should stay buried, which is a very curious mantra for a detective. <laughs> It was great when he sits down with Vic here and he, he, he tries to kind of explain to him that uh, I've got a lot of money if you give me info on this kidnapping I can give you loads of money my employer's a very rich man and then he hands him two crisp hundred dollar bills <laughs> my employer is incredibly wealthy <laughs> see two hundred dollars oh you don't see this kind of wedge every day 
Um, yeah, because uh, Ron does um, approach Vic here. I'm very curious about Vic's life up to this point after we got out of jail and how the Tin Eddies work. Um, the song that we hear from the Tin Eddies, I want to pitch as a closing credits song for this. All right. Um, if you, do you honestly think I'm going to be able to find that? I suppose. Yeah, that's going to be buried in the back annals of somewhere, isn't it? Yeah, there's no way that you can... I'm not expecting you to dig that up in three days' notice. <laughs> Um, but the Tin Eddies are a very strange band. Musically, I would say pretty much a kind of straight shooting kind of southern country rock type affair. But uh, visually, very interesting. They've got like a kind of village people vibe going on because there's an Indian, two greasers, a sheriff, and apparently one member of like American idiot era Green Day. Yeah, yeah. There, uh, there's, there's something to behold. It's worth mentioning the, Na- the Native American character that you mentioned there. Just a female dancer dressed in culturally inappropriate garb. That just over there is straight up a Caucasian woman dressed as an Indian. <laughs> also, he goes to um, he goes to talk to Vic, who is not the singer from this band. He's the guitarist, but he still has his own dressing room in this bar with a star on the door with his name in the middle of it. The Tin Eddies are doing all right. I think so. I, I can only assume that the other guys, like the and the the dancers as well, have similar arrangements in place. Although Vic's dressing room does seem to be filled with women, it doesn't. Maybe that's just all in a day's work for Vic. Maybe like you know, like that's just the life of a tin eddy. Yeah, of a tin eddy of a rural country rock impresario. <laughs> Ron mentions the kidnapping of Dolly Cooper to Vic here, who immediately starts acting incredibly suspiciously. He knows something here. It's quite clear. Uh, yes. Aha. Uh-huh. He also kind of seems to assume that everyone just gets bored with kidnappings after a while because he's evidently surprised that nine years on, anyone still cares. That's right, yeah. But he very quickly kind of absolves himself of any involvement, really, and lays all the blame at the door of Bruce, his partner at the time, a former butcher good with knives. Yes, the very same. Uh Aha. He is also uh, very sceptical about the secret grave and uh, Dolly's death, which, again, it's a secret grave. Ron tells him about it without a second thought. That's right. Ron cannot hold his water. Closely guarded secret for nine years. Now, I have to say, at this juncture, uh, there's not much information about this film out there. I tried to find little tidbits of trivia. I was unable to really locate You will be hard-pressed to dig up virtually anything, because I tried to do the same thing. Yeah, I couldn't find almost anything, so this is pretty much just a by-the-numbers run-through of the events of this film, because we don't have anything else to offer you in terms of behind-the-scenes tidbits or little stories or little interesting things. We don't have any of that. So, uh, worth mentioning now, we're about to come up to the twist in the film. We're going to spoil it, but it's worth spoiling because it is fucking ludicrous. It is absolutely incredible. Also, just when because they get to the cemetery at this point, they do go up there, and much in the same way as we had to watch him photocopying that book for ages, the actual mechanics of them getting into the cemetery takes forever, and it's literally just a case of them driving up, somebody having to get out, open the gate, somebody driving through, then them closing the gate behind them and driving up the hill. But you watch all of that happening excruciatingly slowly. Yeah, you do. Uh, but yeah, uh, as they approach the the grave, Vic's starting to get a little bit twitchy, as you can imagine. But he does he does his bit, and both of them muck in together and exhume the grave of a child. Exactly that. Yeah, exhume the grave of a child. Um, and this is where it gets silly. Yes, it does. See the moment here when they're digging this up, where yeah. Vic looks at the statue, and the statue very quickly cuts to be in the real Dolly, and then back. Mm-hmm. If this film wasn't so preoccupied with bludgeoning you to death with orchestral music all the time, and they'd actually kind of paired that back and thrown a little bit of sound design in there, that would have been a pretty cool jump scare. Yeah, it could have been. It's probably the only thing that I think the film demonstrably does wrong. 
I beg to differ. <laughs> but I'm going to let you take the twist because it's very exciting and it's very silly and I want to hear your reaction to it in real time. <sighs> okay, so Vic and Ron dig up the casket. They burst into it. They look at each other. Stunned, Mitch. They're stunned. They can't mm-hmm. believe what they're seeing here. Cut immediately back to Dr. McGregor. First name Dr. Last name McGregor's house. First words out of Ron's mouth are... This is going to come as a shock. He's not fucking wrong. And I'm like, what the fuck is in this coffin? Also, how did they get the... They carried the coffin out of the graveyard, into the car, drove it all the way back, (laughs) dragged it into McGregor's bedroom, and now we're doing this here. You couldn't have brought McGregor out there, and then you could have put the coffin back. None of this makes the slightest like a sense. But... No. No, see, when Constable Strickler gets back to work in the morning... He's going to find out that there is a grave missing from Western Cemetery and he's not going to be happy because nothing tragic happens to children in that town. No, absolutely not. But we opened the casket. The quality of the film's so bad, I couldn't tell what the fuck I was seeing. I had to wait for a character to vocalise what I was seeing because I had no idea what was going on. Yes, this transfer is very poor. Yeah, yeah. But it's just the dress. Dolly's not yep. there. This leads to the idea being floated that perhaps Dolly's still alive. Now, if it was me... I would want to know for a fact that my child was dead, even if the visual was going to shock me and haunt me for the rest of my life, I wouldn't take it as read that my child was dead, kill myself and move on with my life without stone-cold evidence to the contrary. Yeah, now, this was a, this was only a second watch for me before we did this, and I'd actually forgotten just how patently silly the song gets after this. Mm. I remember thinking, like, I quite like the fact, I mean, remember a couple of weeks ago I was talking about The Lie, and I said that that film had a very silly ending. Yes. But I had this moment where I had to comprehend when the twist happened, I was like, oh, I didn't see that coming, and then I was like, hang on a minute, did I not see that coming because that was a very smart twist? Or did I not see that coming because they have looked at the available options and chosen the absolute stupidest one? <laughs> I did not have such a moment of deliberation with this. This is demonstrably ridiculous. Three or four different people uh, saw that coffin with the air quotes dead child in it. And not a single one of them was like, um, I'm just have a wee look in there and just like make sure. Everyone, everyone immediately jumped to the same conclusion, which was that box had a dead child in it. Specifically Dolly Cooper. To the point that they immediately went and buried it without looking inside it. And put the little girl out of mind for 10 years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, mm-hmm. I've got some uh-huh. other questions, Mitch, about this. Uh, God, I hope you don't think I'm going to answer them, No, do you? no, no. I'm trying to wrap my head around it all, right? Why is there then a ghost? Aside from the fact that the girl is not, in fact, dead, so it would be weird that there is a, a spectral apparition haunting Dr. McGregor. Yeah. The reason I ask about that is when we finally meet Dolly Cooper... Right, and I'm I'm mm-hmm. spoiling it right away. She does make a return in this film. She is still alive, yeah. She has no recollection who she is, right? She doesn't display any apparent psychokinetic abilities, anything that would potentially allow her to leave her body and astrally project herself as a child form into the mind of a man she doesn't know as her father. Doesn't doesn't know exists. Okay, so I can answer this in part, I think. Okay, this will be interesting. Go on. Because ultimately, this film paints itself as being a horror slash supernatural kind of thriller, and it turns out to not really be any of those things. No, it's a crime procedural, if it's anything. I'd be inclined to agree with you there. Um, So this is why I think that it's not a ghost. I believe that what we are seeing here, it's a manifestation of his guilt. 
but then his guilt is manifested in the form of a child that he's never met yeah that part i'm not so sure about but the actual kind of the notion of him being visited by it it's not a ghost it's his guilt visiting him in dreams it's his guilt manifesting in the same way that the grief does in the babadook right Okay. Um, However, she was 10 years old when this happened, and we may as well just briefly jump ahead to the fact that Dolly Cooper is still alive. And, as we learn almost immediately, is the daughter of Dr. McGregor, and this is where it gets very funny for me. This is one of my favourite scenes in the entire film. Yes, so as you just touched on, um, another ludicrous point in this is that Dr. McGregor has kept to himself up to this point from Ron from everyone that it is his belief that Dolly Cooper is his estranged slash potentially dead daughter <laughs> yeah yeah and he goes on to explain his reasons for believing this and <laughs> I didn't expect them to get so graphic and braggy yeah he shows his work in on this theory it's absolutely bizarre it's so funny in my opinion like i think that it's on so many levels and in so many ways this is where there's some gear shifts into being like an absolute masterpiece of the kind of films that we talk about in here because what you have here is this protracted flashback of the fact that elizabeth cooper uh in her pre-destitution days Mm -hmm. was a nurse who worked alongside dr mcgregor that's right, and he goes on to say how beautiful she was, and, and she was beautiful, that she wanted him, and she had a gorgeous body, and she used it well, and I'm just, I was sitting like, fucking stick to the facts, man, like, he's gonna wind up with some geriatric boner on the go. Exactly, but, like, they, he's, he's just he's just dropped this absolutely game-changing piece of information, and Ron Hunt, understandably, is like, mate, what the fuck, and then he's like, no, no, no. Let me tell it. And then just goes on this protracted story where he just talks about the fact that they, they just shag constantly. Yeah, the favorite like, quote here was just that love was any time and anywhere. The office, the car. And I was just <laughs> like, all right, we get it. You're a demon fucking swordsman, right? We, we get it. <laughs> Uh, and then we see a lot of her stripping, which seems a trifle unnecessary. Yeah, it really is. It really is. It's 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 very funny, but it's like it's it's so bizarre. Ron's reaction to all of this when he says that it's his daughter is a proper like cartoon. What? He's almost blown off his chair. <laughs> Um, however, all good things must pass, and this torrid love affair burns so bright but so fast. Too bright and too fast, some might say. Yeah, so we do find out that Elizabeth Cooper did fall pregnant by Dr. McGregor with Dolly. Uh, That's right. She wanted to have the kid. He immediately suggests he bankrolls an abortion. Difficult conversation, that. Yeah, I would say so. So he is understandably upset about the ensuing guilt of the fact that she walked out and he's now kind of a little bit more savvy to the fact that she's had this horrible life or had this horrible life prior mm-hmm. to her suicide. He has also come to the logical conclusion that Dolly is probably his daughter. Yeah. And this all to me plays out very much like the kind of third act final twist reveal of like a classic film noir. Yes, you're right. The fact that this now dis- like this is a perfect place to end the film. Not really, unless Dolly literally walked through the door, which I, I guess would be no less unbelievable than everything that's gone before this point. I mean, like, where are we right now? Like the sixty-minute mark in this film, yeah, something we're, we're like ju- that. We're um, just about to hit Act Three. Yeah, so I would say that like it wouldn't have taken too much plot machination to kind of work dolly into the story in a way that had her kind of not appearing here but them being reunited or there being a resolution to that in a way that is neater 
than having to involve what I understand to be a subplot slash B story slash third act that involves two different crime syndicates. <laughs> yeah, because uh, I mean, <laughs> Doctor McGregor says, "Listen, Ron, I, I need to know where she is. I need to know what's happening. Can you stay on the case? I've got truckloads of money. Money's no object. Just please find her for me, Ron." And Ron just goes, cool, this has all gone extremely easily up to this point. I'll just go back and speak to Vic. He'll point me in the right direction. And he does. Vic pretty much tells him exactly where to go. And Ron just kind of bumbles from garage to garage to scrapyard, just asking if they know where Bruce is. And then one guy just goes, yeah, he's the shoeshine guy at the mall. And off he goes again. And everything just flows. Yeah. Ron has no problem up until the last kind of five or ten minutes of this film ron has no problem everything just falls into place perfectly for him considering it involves everyone who isn't ron thinking that the girl at the center of the investigation was dead and she wasn't this is an incredibly easily solved mystery yeah Mm -hmm. like unbelievably so and not because i think that we ever really get the impression that ron hunt is a particularly good detective the pieces just fall into place in an unbelievably convenient and serendipitous fashion this is the easiest money he's ever fucking made. 200 quid a day, man. He was three years undercover with a narcotics ring. Yeah, this is an okay little retirement nest egg. He's I bet he had there, to right? do some fucking dodgy stuff, man, when he was undercover with those drug guys. 100%, 100%. But, as you say, he does go to an auto shop, amongst other places, an auto shop that's demonstrably run by a mobster. Mm. He gets a little bit of information about where Bruce is, and like you say, he is the shoeshine guy at the mall, information that is relayed to him by yet another atrocious ancillary character Terrible. actor. Terrible. He's also... Uh, like. A back alley bookie. He is indeed, yeah. Um, he doesn't want to just approach Bruce outright, so what he does instead is that he writes him a note. Uh, he works quite a clever angle here, but he uh, writes him a note and then accosts a child. That's right. And is like, can you give this note to that man? Which has a proper swipe of the, like, my pal fancies you thing. <laughs> like, you know, you can almost imagine him, like, unfolding the paper and it's like, do you like me? And two, like, the yes, no checkboxes. And then just Bruce's eyebrows go up. <laughs> You're like Millhouse. <laughs> Yeah, but Ron, being a little bit kind of a little bit savvy here, a little bit clever, probably the first time that we've seen him make what is actually a tactical decision rather than just following a very obvious trail of breadcrumbs to solving the mystery. Yeah. <laughs> he basically suggests that the mafia are going to sack him when they discover what's going on. They've, mm. like, they've got wind of what he's done and the mafia are going to sack him for killing someone, which is famously where they draw the line. Can I just say... The three mafia guys that we see here, like the trio of mafia assassins, are the funniest looking fucking guys I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, I don't have a name for the lead one, but I called the other two Crazy Eyes Luca and Jimmy the Hat. (laughs) Okay. I trust I don't need to explain which is which. No, 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 no. I had one as uh, tall glasses and trench coat moustache. (laughs) <laughs> so yours are actually i would say a little zingier than mine thanks thanks so bruce uh and ron have a conversation bruce very quickly levels with ron uh it's like everyone in this film took like a powerful dose of truth serum mm-hmm. like the minute anytime anyone sits down with anyone knowing an absolute scrap of the person's backstory just unloads all of their darkest and most torrid secrets ron's got an open face you can tell him anything he'll Ten tell guys. everybody else but you can tell him anything <laughs> We do find out at this point that uh, Bruce, after trying to 
presumably unsuccessfully, in fact, definitely unsuccessfully, extorting Bluer for the ransom money, mm-hmm. cannot bring himself to, well, he certainly paints it like he can't bring himself to let go of this poor 10-year-old girl. But obviously, if he did, then he would probably get rumbled for the kidnapping. Sure. So uh, Dolly, now 19, uh, lives in his basement, and he has fed her a line of shite about her parentage and said that he is her biological father. Now, this leads me to my central question and what I think is a central logic flaw in this film. Go on. Now, I'm not saying that Dolly could have gone to the authorities because it sounds like what we have here is a kind of hostage situation that is kind of masquerading as a father-daughter relationship, a protective one. You, know? you think there's an element of Stockholm Syndrome crept in here? I mean, perhaps, yeah. It's not for me to say I can't speak to Dolly's state of mind. She's had quite a life. You're not a, but, you're not a psychiatrist, but you can... You know what, I'm not. But uh, I, you know, I, I am no Dr. McGregor, first name doctor, second name McGregor. Right? So my curiosity about it is this. Uh, she was 10 years old when this happened. She wasn't a baby. Correct. I have I have that written down too. Yeah, like she's 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 completely mystified about her parentage. It's like she was stolen from a hospital when she had been born for half an hour. Yeah, she was with her mum longer than she's been with this guy. That is true. Actually, she spent more than half of her life with her mum and has zero recollection of almost anything that happened in that time. Like four-year-olds can work iPads. Macaulay Culkin was 10 when he was in Home Alone. Yeah, right? So, like, it's a massive leap of faith for us to be... And I think it's the biggest leap of faith that this film asks us to take. That, all right, okay, uh, she has just completely forgotten about everything. I mean, she might have, like, repressed it because it was traumatic. But I don't think you you repressed the first 10 years of your childhood. Mm. Like, all of it. But it, it, it seems like she either has no recollection of any of this or was born 10 years old. Yeah. It doesn't really hold up. Um, as it turns out, Bruce is not to be trusted. He's not. Um, no, no, no. The second, the second he sees an opening, he clobbers Ron, drags him into his house, and ties him up with the flimsiest rope knot combination I've ever seen in my life. So flimsy, in fact, that Ron escapes later on with the minimum of effort. Yeah, he could have done this any time. Uh, also, the sequence where Bruce is like roughing up Ron is absolutely hilarious. It's the most like half-arsed, okay, uh, like rough him up, but make sure that you don't actually hurt him direction ever. Yeah. He also, um, he also says at this point that uh, he works for the real bad mob out of Detroit. The real bad mob, just like the worst of the mobs. Yeah, and I'm sure that that's how they talk about each other as well. Are we incurring the wrath of the mafia here? God, we'll see and find out, won't we? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Bruce has, has been suspicious of Ron from the outset. One of my favourite lines of dialogue, when I saw your Canadian ID and your Canadian licence plate, I knew something was up. It's like, yeah, he's probably Canadian. Ron has a moment to explain to Dolly as much information as possible. And he does catch her up on her mum dying in fairly blunt fashion. I suppose there's no time for niceties. There's no time to sugarcoat these things. Time is definitely a factor at this point. He does also give her Chekhov's cumbersomely attained photocopy. (laughs) That's all it takes for her to just fall into line. As far as she knows, 10 years of her life, 20 years of her life, have been in the company of this overweight, sweaty, smelly man that's kept her in a basement and occasionally... Let's play in the scrapyard. Yeah, I think at this point, maybe, I don't know, maybe that ties in, though. Maybe, like, the fact that she so blithely accepts this, despite having evidently no real recollection of it, is perhaps an interesting indicator of how little she's seen of the world. True. Because anybody could just walk in and be like, hello, I'm here to take you to your biological father. Here is a photocopy of a 10-year-old newspaper that explains this. This is definitely not something that I have made up. (laughs) And you just look at it and go, 
Let's go. Yeah, I have no reason to trust any human beings at all because I have interacted with none of them. But let's go. You <laughs> seem trustworthy. You've got an open face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have kind eyes and a nice jumper. Let's go. <laughs> um, however, the gangsters show up. And uh, at this point, I feel like the stakes in the film start to get very muddled indeed because they shoot Bruce in the head, but also go in for the kill with Dolly and uh, Ron as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Did you notice that one of the guys is just, uh, one of the, the mobsters is just spinning his gun like Robocop the whole time? <laughs> So you know he's the cool guy. <laughs> uh, the mobsters blow in. If you haven't seen this film, and it sounds like this is just an endless succession of nonsense, it's because it is. It definitely um, is. Yeah. But like, I just want to say as well. Like, I mean, because that sounds like I'm despising the film. It's just like I just think that this is like this is like it's really really silly, and it's like it gets really really twisty and just throws layers and layers of crazy on top of crazy. But it's so fun. Okay. Just an absolute monsoon of nonsense that is hitting you for like the entire third act of this film but like by the time they're driving them to the junkyard and bundle them into the back of the car and uh crazy guys Luca is trying to kill them by just like using a car crusher on them that's right i'm so on board yeah. i mean it's it's a ludicrous way for this story to end like what I'd, what so like what it started out as being this kind of like quite well they're trying to kind of sensitively portray this relationship, uh, this mysterious relationship by what appears to be this old eccentric doctor and this girl that had died under mysterious circumstances and he has very altruistically and very kindly and compassionately developed this very real curiosity about the mysterious circumstances under which he died. He feels like he's got this connection to her. He wants to understand the hardships of her life and just and just kind of fully flesh out his understanding of this mysterious figure to whom he's developed this intangible attachment. And it ends with this mafia standoff in a junkyard. And you just think, how did we get here? And it's so thrilling and incomprehensible. And when you try to review the series of decisions that get you to that point, it just doesn't make any sense at all. And it's delirious and it's great. Thrilling's a strong word, I would say. But uh, just when things look the bleakest for Ron and Dolly... They are moments away from being crushed. Absolutely. They are saved. And who could save them? Who could be their, their knight in shining armour... Who is it that's ridden to the rescue? None other than Vicky the reporter. Good old thirsty Vicky. Finished <laughs> the bottle of wine days ago and has now just been, well, we, we kind of assumed, because I was like, where the fuck has she come from? <laughs> you know, like, we, we, like when, she, when she turns up, it's like, this is ludicrous in terms of a, like, remember me, like third act saviour. Well, Ron goes, uh, what are you doing here? And I was like, yeah, Ron, what the fuck is she doing here? Yeah, Ron becoming an avatar for the audience. As it turns out, she is here because journalism. She is such a hotshot reporter that she has pieced together this entire thing herself. So I guess a kind of story within a story. You know, Ron is on the case of uh, Dolly. She's on the case of Ron. She hasn't, though, because she says that she smelled a story the minute she saw Ron and then took it upon herself to follow him covertly everywhere he went after the fact so she was probably just hanging about quite close to the junkyard by this point anyway yeah it's true because you imagine watching this film from her point of view just like following him around in a car to all the million locations that he goes to <laughs> just constantly having to stop for petrol and sustenance because she's just doing this constantly for days just drinking wine alone in her hotel room peering out the window <laughs> Yeah, just in the same increasingly kind of tattered-looking green dress, and she just looks sleepier and sleepier. <laughs> but she's the real hero of the piece, I suppose. I suppose so. I guess that's true. She has also phoned the police. They are on their way. The police come clattering into scene from two different directions. It's hilarious. The mafiosos are immediately kidnapped, and uh, Jimmy the Hat, who up to this point has been extremely quiet, becomes the angriest man in the room. Yeah, he isn't at all happy that they're immediately arrested and uh, takes it out on 
the other guy that you were saying. Uh, crazy guys, Luca. That's right. Yes, yes, the very same. Uh, so all seems well. Mm. Uh, Ron is handed an envelope stuffed with cash from uh, Doctor McGregor, who is in a lovely Hollywood happy ending, reunited with the woman he abandoned and the child he tried to have aborted. <laughs> He's not been reunited with the woman he abandoned. He's been <laughs> reunited with the former employer of the woman he abandoned, who, as far as we know, he has no connection to whatsoever. No, but he does look like he fancies her a bit, and she has a bottomless pit of money, apart from to pay for the emancipation of other people's children from kidnappers, which he definitely won't do. <laughs> yeah, he gives off strong vibes. In fact, they both do. That They are probably going to bone an eye for one. Can't wait to hear an exhaustive detail from Dr. <laughs> McGregor, who can't hold his fucking water, exactly how much shagging they were doing. <laughs> Yeah, he'll be screaming that from uh, the rooftops in Graveyard Story 2. <laughs> anyway, um, Ron's off, adventure awaits. Yeah, questionable display of journalistic integrity here. Vicky is um, about to interview Ron, but also is drinking champagne with him and is demonstrably off for a dirty weekend with him as well, seeing as he says that they're away for three days and three nights. Yeah, they're going to have sex. You can, you can always tell when someone in a film is going to have sex as the film's closing when they put up that little dividing bit of glass in a limousine. Yeah, mm -hmm. a very whimsical ending, I think, when in unbelievably deafeningly loud ADR, as the car pulls off, Ron goes, well, let me tell you, it's a strange story. <laughs> well, let me tell you, I fucked her. <laughs> and on that charming note, uh, the credits roll on the graveyard story um yeah. so uh, everyone everyone knows what i think of this i've been talking about this at length for a little while as have the uh, lovely subgroup slash breakaway faction of people who love it in the trod locker as well so which side of the line andy stewart do you fall on i'm gonna say much i quite enjoyed this mm -hmm. quite being the operative word i'm not gonna rush back to the graveyard story i have to be honest <laughs> okay but I would 100% watch another Ron Hunt film like, if they expanded his universe out to, or gave him like his own TV show, like an, an Ironside or a Kojak. It seems like such an incredible oversight that they didn't do that. Um, <laughs> I mean... After the success of this one, it blows my fucking mind. <laughs> yeah, it's a strange one, isn't it? But yeah, Adrian Paul, who played Ron Hunt in this, mm. uh, did not have a, like, a hugely long and an illustrious acting career. I'm going to surprise you here. No, uh, as, far, as he... far as I'm aware, and I, I do remember certain things that happen on this podcast, as far as I'm aware... He maybe only appeared on one other thing, which was City in Panic, which was a previous... It might have been my first Mitch's pitch that I did. Yes, I was off the back of the conversation in the Chudlocker about the Graveyard Story that we ended up using the City of Panic poster as uh, the first Andy's pitch, of which we've now done a couple. The only other thing that Adrian Paul has been in is um, he played interviewer in the 1991 film In the Nick of Time. It appears to be a Christmas film. Oh, okay. Cool. Uh, in which Santa Claus is up for retirement after his 300 years and he searches New York City for a replacement. Also, just want to talk very briefly about the curious career of uh, Bozidar de Benedict. Sure, sure, yeah. The less successful follow-up to the curious case of Benjamin Button. <laughs> but weirdly... Uh, a story that I think I would be more interested in. So, he's got nine directorial credits, mm. of which the first four were uh, three to five minute short films that he shot between the years of 1963 and 1965. Right. So yeah, he directed those. After that, he took a 22 year hiatus from cinema and filmmaking. 
and then came back in 1987 uh, with a surprisingly prolific year. It's kind of like that time that the Eagles took like 20 years off from music and then made a double album. Because uh, he released uh, a film called Beyond the Seventh Door mm-hmm. um, in 1987 and also Brooklyn Nights, Lovely. in which a hospital nurse aids a homeless New York street artist attacked by drug dealers. See, that sounds like it's got something to say. I agree. And after that, we had the Graveyard Story four years later. And then he took another 16-year break from cinema. Um, <laughs> and his most recent uh, output was uh, Vanessa, a feature called Vanessa, which came out in 2007, also under the Unistar distributor, which also put this out. But Vanessa, yeah, a young abuse victim, runs away from home, eventually resorting to prostitution as a means of supporting herself while praying for the miracle that will steer her away from suicide and help her get started down the road to recovery. Jesus Christ, that sounds depressing. But it also does sound a little bit like the kind of backstory that's alluded to for um, Elizabeth Cooper in this film. Sure, yeah, 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 I suppose. And in the other film, we've got a woman coming to the aid of a street artist. It seems like he's very much into his kind of saviorism. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, these characters have hit on hard times that are um, somehow rescued or saved by benefactors or kind people. You think he's either got an altruistic heart himself or he's he's saying something about altruism that maybe he's experienced in his life since I mean he's from Yugoslavia Uh, who knows what the hell was going on yeah and I mean and he evidently also has a bottomless pit of money to keep making these weird films so fair play to him I don't know if it's a bottomless pit of money because this doesn't feel like it has an enormous amount of money behind it that is a fair assessment (laughs) Um, but yes graveyard story so moderate success do I get a pass on this one I've got it I'll give you a pass yeah it's it's the kind of nonsense thing that I kind of like it's the kind of nonsense thing we've done before, like Truth or Dare, A Critical Madness, or Boarding House. I was digging for it. I was digging for the title of Boarding House just there, but yeah, that's exactly the films, that, or those were exactly the films that I was thinking of um, when I was thinking about the type of film that this is. Yeah, it's nowhere near as entertaining as either of them, but it does have some extremely funny moments in it that did make me laugh out loud, like hoarsely laugh. <laughs> Um, we would be very interested to know one how many of you actually went out and checked this out and uh, two what you all thought of it so please do get in touch with us and let us know Uh, you can do that through all the usual channels Facebook and Instagram or Strong Language Violent Scenes you can tweet us at Strong Violent PC and you can email scenes at gmail.com don't forget also you can interact with other listeners on our Facebook group The Chud Locker and the conversation about this one has been pretty lively so far has it really in the past since we announced it in the past couple of days yeah it's kind of sprung to life it's been good you'll hear all about it on Monday's Minisode. I'm sure I will and I look forward to that immensely. We do have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash strong language violent scenes uploading a big swathe of content to that next week so keep your eyes peeled guys yeah I've got some plans of it you'll be hearing all about that so keep your eyes on the feeds that's patreon.com slash strong language violent scenes however before all that we will be back on Monday with another minisode for your ears join us then if you can in the meantime don't forget it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds goodbye bye You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.